Hey everyone, I'm Jasper. And I'm Stefano. And welcome to Make the Jump, where our mission is to find unique experiences, perspectives, and mindsets of individuals from all walks of life. If there's one thing we know, success comes in many different forms, and it's our goal to find out just how diverse it can be. The purpose of this podcast is to share with you, the listener, what we learn from some of the most successful people we know. So let's jump right in. Today's guest is the legendary longtime head athletic trainer of the Los Angeles Lakers. For over three decades, he was the glue of the team, helping players go from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. This past year, he wrote a book titled 32 Years of Titles and Tears from the Best Seat in the House. It's a great read, and I definitely recommend checking it out. Now, without further ado, please welcome Gary Vitti. Welcome. Thanks for being on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Well, how's everything been for you? Well, 2020 has been really, really difficult for me. Um, you know, and not to, to be a downer, but my mother passed away on New Year's Day. Uh, so just right out of the shoot, January 1st, and it's just gone mm-hmm. you know, downhill after yeah. that. So, you know, we had, we had that, we had the Kobe tragedy, yeah. we've had the coronavirus thing, uh, we've had the George Floyd situation, which is, you know, turned society upside down, uh, as, as probably it should. Um, yeah. You know, these things need to be addressed. It's, it's unfortunate that um, it takes an act like that. Um, I actually wrote... Um, a blog about it. I don't know if you noticed that on, on BD report. Um, so it's been, it's been rough. 2020 has been rough. We're only halfway through the year. So, exactly. uh, you know, I'm looking forward to 2021, but we got another mm-hmm. six months to go. I know all uh, we can we do is get to make the, the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's definitely been a, a lot of heartache and uh, a lot of like just questioning, like what is happening right now? I think yeah. for me in terms of like everything that's happening, I've recognized a lot of stuff about who I am as a white person, my privilege and all that stuff. And I think that's something that's been really important for me to kind of take a step back on where I come from and the society that we live in. And so I think it's been a, it's been actually shocking, but there's been times that um, I'm excited to grow. I'm excited to see what's on the other side. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how you, you said it, looking at yourself as a, as a white person, the way I worded it in, in the blog was, and, and having spent more than half of my life working with predominantly minorities, yeah. um, when I wrote the blog, I, I said something, I don't remember exactly how I, I worded it, but not talking about me as a white person, but me talking about not being black. Yeah, right? exactly. There's yeah. a really big difference. Yeah. And, and it starts with, I believe, that don't, don't like not the, the privilege part, but I don't, I don't think any of us understand what it's like to be black unless you're black. Exactly. Yeah. So having said that, once again, spending more than half of my life 
working with minorities, traveling with minorities, eating with minorities, no matter how much time we spend together, I will never, ever know what it's like to be right. a black male right. in America. I, we just, I know it's, it's hard and I know it's scary. Yeah, um, scary, yeah. But I, I really do not know the depths of it. And that's being side by side with yeah. minorities for, for more than three decades. And a lot of people don't get that kind of perspective and that opportunity. So that was really well put. Thank yeah. you for that. Um, um, without that, like, let's just, let's move forward. But yeah. I think that that's important that we just talk about that to get things rolling. Yeah. Well, one of the first things we wanted to know a little bit about you is I know you grew up in uh, an Italian family, an immigrant family. Uh, can you let us know a little bit just how that experience was for you growing up and also kind of getting into sports, if sports was even existent in your family, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a way where, you know, my father immigrated uh, to the United States and and my mother's family immigrated from from the same town that my father was born in. She was actually born in Queens, New York, but... Mm -hmm. You know, her mother and father, which was my grandparents, they came from the same village that my dad did. So um, growing up the way I did, it was like when I was inside the home with my family, it was like we were in our, the name of our village is Sete Prati. So culturally growing up, I felt like inside the house, I was growing up in Italy. Mm. And then as soon as I walked out of the front door, I stepped into America. And, right. and so there was a real dichotomy there. And, and Stefano, I know you could probably relate to this quite a bit. Because that, was, that was a very accurate statement. Way. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and, and because it, it was diverse. I mean, it was such a diversity. And, and as soon as walking out the front door, the way other kids were, you know, and, yeah. and and so it was, it was quite different. Um, there was absolutely no sports in, in our home. Wow. Um, yeah, there was only hard work and, and education. Uh, my, neither of my parents, my father never graduated from high school. My mother did graduate from high school. I think both my mom and dad were very bright. Uh, my mother was very, very intelligent. They just didn't have an opportunity for an education. Yeah. Um, but they were hardworking, honest people. And basically, that's all we knew was hard work and, and education. Uh, the town that I grew up in, though, it, the name of that town is Stanford, Connecticut. It's about 40 miles from the center of Manhattan. Uh, and it has a rich sports history. I'm yeah. sure most people have heard of Bobby Valentine, mm -hmm. you know, the great baseball player and later, you know, baseball manager. He's from my town. Um, you guys, before your time, when I broke into the NBA, Larry O'Brien was the commissioner of the NBA, wow. and yeah. then David Stern, and now Adam Silver. Well, going way back, the, the commissioner was Walter Kennedy, and um, he was from my, my hometown. Jackie Robinson, the very first black uh, baseball player, yeah. um, lived in, in Stanford, Connecticut. He's not from there, but he settled there. He played for the yeah. Brooklyn Dodgers and settled in Stanford. Um, so his, his family was there. So we were very, Andy Robustelli was, uh, uh, once again, before your, your time, he just yeah. passed away a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he was 90 years old, but uh, when he passed away, 
But he was um, all pro defensive end for the New York Giants. He was captain of the New York Giants football team, later became the general manager of the New York Giants football team. And so it was a very rich town in terms of sports, and every yeah. kid wanted to be an athlete, including me. Yeah. And, um, and I was at a very young age. I was pretty competitive. But by the time I got to high school, you know, all, the, all that talent that was spread across our, our, our town, across Stanford and all different elementary schools and grammar schools and Pop Warner and, and Little League and Tiny League and Babe Ruth, you know, all of that started getting funneled into, you know, one of the two or three main high schools. And then I really found out that I was at the bottom of the talent pool. Um, so I did make the JV basketball team as go. a high school freshman. Yeah. But um, to this day, I'm not exactly sure when and how or what happened between the coach and I, but we had a very distinct um, dislike towards each other. Wow. And yeah, and, and, and he tried to run me off the team, but I was stubborn enough to not do that and just said to myself, you just need to finish the season and then you never have to play again. And then that, that's basically exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, I did finish the season on the team and then um, it's in the book. If you, if you want to read yeah. the book and, and then I used that, that free time. Uh, I got a part-time job in, in the U S post office uh, working. In that's the a hard office. job. I, that's difficult. Right. So instead of being an athlete, I always had a couple of bucks in my pocket. Hey, okay? compared uh, to all your former students, yeah, yeah. We were just trying to play basketball or something. You were working. We're we're familiar with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. So that, that's that was my story. Um, so it's 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 uh, it's odd that I, the, you know, the Italian kid with the failed high school career ends up in professional right. sports ends up going with the flagship franchise uh, exactly. like the LA Lakers and going yeah. to the going to the finals 12 times and walking away with eight championship rings you know yeah. no one could have predicted that it's unbelievable uh, yeah yeah well, a great career i have a i have a yeah. little bit of a question in terms of about how your parents raised you in terms of foundation instilling like values i know for for stefano and i value is really important i mean and we have awesome awesome parents who have kind of really guided our our growth and given us a, a platform to kind of talk to them openly, but also say, look, this is what you have to do. These are your responsibilities. And that's really paid dividends for us in terms of, you know, getting good grades and being dedicated to that and meeting new people and making connections. And I was just wondering if there's anything there that you really took away from your parents that was really important to you. Sure. So I think first off, um, that we should define what values are. Yeah. Um, so what I, what I would consider the definition of your values is what's important to you. Yeah. And, and I talk about Dr. Buss in, in the book and some other people that, um, that I felt that he was the trifecta. He was the epitome of the trifecta of human values, which was honesty, kindness and loyalty yeah and, and i believe that that's what was instilled in me both um through my parents and my parochial education yeah and so i often tell young people um 
you know, this is going a little bit off in a tangent, but I think it, it's good for young people like you yeah. that are in, in relationships or they're not in relationships, but they're looking for a relationship. Okay. You know, a guy looking for a nice girl or a girl looking for a nice guy. And, and especially like when I talk to young women and I talk to my daughters when they were uh, young, they're in re- my, you know, my one daughter's married, my other daughter's in a, in a good relationship, but um, you know, what are you looking for in, in a, in a, in a man? And, and so, you know, I always would hear, well, he's got to have a, a good personality. He's got to have a yeah. good sense of humor. And I, and I would tell him, well, I know a lot of funny guys, but they're not very nice guys, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, is that really what, what you're looking for? And, and right. so, you know, once again, I, I think that, you know, what's important to you? What are your values? If honesty is, is your value, then, you know, you should be looking for an honest person. Yeah. If kindness is, I used to think kindness was the number one value. I learned through some kind of mistakes in, in my life, you know, with the wrong people that honesty is the number one value. Kindness becomes yeah. number two and loyalty to me yeah. is yeah. number three. And, and it doesn't necessarily that that has to be your top three, but those are mine. Yeah. And and so going back in terms of relationships, you know, if that's what you're looking for, um, you know, that's that's what you need to find. And very often, you find that when you have people that are have grown up culturally the same, okay. Not necessarily. You could be completely culturally diverse, but um, you know, very often, if people um, are grown up, you grow up Italians, grow up with certain values. Um, so you see a lot of Italian people go with Italian people. You know, a lot of Lat- yeah. Latinos go with Latinos. It doesn't have to be that way, yeah. um, but but sometimes it just works out that way. You know, yeah. You know, my my wife is is Mexican, and we're culturally very very similar. Very we're similar. Brought up the same way. Yeah. You know, there's um, a big. I think there's a big, strong family foundation in both Latino cultures and specifically in Italian cultures, like uh, like the ones that we came from. And I think it's a very important distinction between different cultures with like different familial backgrounds foundations and i think that's a a big aspect to a lot of people's lives now yeah i I agree but there's also people that don't come from strong family foundations it's not important to them doesn't mean they're bad people it it just means that you know that they don't come from that so it's hard if you come from a big family Okay, and and you're trying to have a relationship with someone that's not used to being around a big family and yeah. all the responsibilities that come with that. Yeah, that that that's a difficult transition to make. Yeah, Very, yeah. it can be uncomfortable, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you do six to eight things a month with with your family. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, you know, some people can handle that. You know, on the other side of the coin. Some people that that's what they're looking for, you know. I yeah. want to be around my family as much yeah. as I can every weekend. You know what I mean? When I was a kid, every weekend we were we grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, but all my cousins were in New York. Yeah. Wow. So every weekend we were in the car. We were on our way yeah. 
the Queens or the Bronx and wow. playing football in the street with my yeah. cousins and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's uh, we talk about, you know, with some of our friends, like one of the questions that we ask is like, do you have family dinners? Like and how often do you have them? That's like it's just it's so important to both of us yeah. to sit down with our family. I do it probably five days a week. You probably five to probably, seven yeah, every day. Every week, every day. We yeah. do it pretty much, but I just think it's so important to connect with your family, rejoin, be open. And, um, you know, it, the reason why we start with family, I think is a really important point is that it just sets you up for everything in the future. It's, it helps you really with your perception. It gives you, and, and the problem is also is, you know, if you're not raised in a place where you have guidance and you have, you know, honesty and kindness, it's hard for you to navigate. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, I think I just, I'm happy that we talked about that. Yeah. Happy we, and well, that. We, we all, we should say though, that there's, there's people that, that aren't that way and they're just fine. Yeah. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that if, if you're that way, then you should probably be with someone that, that, way. that way. Also yeah. that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Doesn't mean that people that don't, you know, have no, no, no. with their yeah. family are, are, are not good, honest, kind, yeah. productive people, you know. But if that's the way you're raised, like I really believe in the Freudian theory that you you repeat your childhood over and over and over again, yeah. all the good things and all the bad things. Yeah. Okay. You know, all the good things, if you can get reinforcement from those things, you'll continue to do good things. All the bad things, if you don't realize them, yeah, and and do something to stop that sort of behavior, right. you will continue that behavior over and yeah. over again, which I think most people do. Yeah, there's a certain percentage of the population that realizes that hey, th- this part of me is not so good, and and usually those people seek out help and find a way, therapy or whatever, find a way to stop that that behavior okay because all of us have some good and 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 some not so good exactly yeah well uh you a little bit earlier you spoke a little bit about your high school kind of uh story and experience but i know after my failed career and athletic career (laughs) yeah we won't say that but yes your high school experience i'm saying it (laughs) and uh, i know after high school came a big part of your life entering into college and going through the college experience too. What were you kind of looking for in terms of your higher education in yeah. terms of getting into getting the degree you wanted, pursuing a master's education? What can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I I my my educational experience was a little circuitous in, in the sense that when I graduated from high school once again, because of my upbringing and, and the strong um, sort of feelings that you had to go to college, mm-hmm. you know, I just went from 12th grade to like 13th grade. Yeah. You know, that, that's the way I looked at it. But the transition from, from high school to college was not a, an easy one nor a good one for me because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew that I was going to another year, at least another four years of, of school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And and so um, 
I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I majored in, in speech and, um, and I figured, you know, the best thing to do is just try to make a lot of money. Um, and so I graduated from college in four years, which, you know, in those days, that, that's the way it was done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because if it took you five years, like employers thought there was something wrong with you. You know, like, why would you do for a year? You know what yeah. I mean? And so, you know, I did it in four years as everyone did in, in those days. It's even, my father even said to me the day we graduated, I was looking for kind of a pat on my back. And <laughs> my dad said to me, well, what's the big deal? Everybody graduates from college these days. Now you got to go make something out of yourself. Yeah. And so that's kind of the environment that I, I grew up in where there was always pushing, 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 you know. And, and, and so, you know, I got a, I started working, um, and making money and I got into the corporate life, you know, the three piece suit and the wing tips and the, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, suit and tie every day. And yeah. I did that for three years and, and, um, and I didn't much enjoy it. Uh, and so I, I thought that maybe there was something else in life, uh, something more meaningful. And so I started looking um, for that. Yeah. And so now, you, you know, I'm, I'm around, what, 25 years old, you know, yeah. three years of, out of college. And my sister was a librarian, and I would go visit her uh, working in the library, and she would give me, you know, this, the, the, these sort of projections of, you know, what the job market was going to be like in the next few years. Because I graduated from undergrad in 76. Job market was really bad really 1976 mm -hmm. and so i was looking for not so much a job but a vocation yeah, yeah. and yeah. and one of the things that came across um came across my desk was meteorology wow. uh, cool. yeah yeah <laughs> so i like sciences and i thought meteorology well that could be cool mm -hmm. you know what i mean i'll go you know work on a weather station or something yeah. i'm not talking about being on tv the weatherman i was you know talking about working for the, you know, National Oceanographic, you know, thing. And, <clears throat> and so I applied, one of the top schools in the country was the University of Utah in, in meteorology. So, you know, I always wanted to go west. So I packed my bags and got into the program, went out there and realized very quickly, like I did with my high school uh, athletic career, that meteorology was math on top of physics on top of math on top of physics and and i could do that but i was once again in the bottom of the talent pool mm -hmm. when it when it came along yeah. around to that kind of stuff yeah, you yeah. Know? I, and, I i relate completely <laughs> yeah. i mean you can do it you can learn it right but but what what came so naturally to other people in the class yeah. whether yeah the way, you know, the way they think, you know, um, for me, it wasn't, it, I didn't think that way. So I had to learn. So it was drudgery, you mm -hmm. know, didn't come naturally, yeah. but I was in the program and there's no way I could go, you know, quit. And there's no way I could go back home with my tail between my legs. And, and, and so it just so happened that, uh, Christmas rolled around end of the first semester. Right. And, mm -hmm. I jumped in the car and I drove to California 
And I had two friends that I went to undergrad with that were working as swim coaches at UCLA. One actually became a very famous water polo coach, the, the Olympic uh, head water polo coach, Rich wow. Corso. And um, I visited them for a few days. We were all from back east, so we all hopped on a plane, flew back to New York together and visited our families for Christmas. And then I flew back to California and jumped in the car and drove back to, to Utah. Well, during that trip, while I was in LA, um, these two guys gave me a book. And the name of the book was The Sports Medicine Book. And it was written by Dr. Gabe Merkin. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that sports medicine even existed. Right. Um, I knew there was sports and I knew there was medicine, but I didn't know there was sports medicine. And so we're, we're talking around circa 1979, 1980. And so if you really look at sports medicine, we've had athletic trainers around since the gladiators. But the science of sports medicine is, is a relatively young discipline, only about 40 or 50 years old. Yeah. So if you go back to 1980, we're talking about 40 years ago. Yeah. Okay, where the sports medicine thing is just emerging. And we're also talking about Gary Vitti is just emerging. <laughs> and, and so I go back, I, I read this book on the plane, and I said, this is, this is it. This is me. This is exactly what I want to do with my life. Wow. Yeah. So I go back to the University of Utah, and um, I meet with the head athletic trainer, Bill Bean. He was a wonderful human being. Uh, you know, he gave me his time, which he didn't have to do. You know, I could feel his passion for sports medicine. And, and I said, I, I think this is what I want to do. And he said, well, great. He goes, the thing is, you can't do it here. Um, why not? Well, the program's full. Oh, my God. And I said, okay. I said, I'll find another school to go to. And, and, and so I said, but can I do one thing? Um, you know, I'm locked in for the rest of the year here. During my free time, would it be okay if I visited the training room? I'll stand in the corner. I won't touch anything. I won't talk to anybody. I won't bother anybody. I just want to observe to make sure that this is what I want to do with, with my life. And as I say to people, it's a very interesting concept that I learned that if you hang around a place long enough, you become part of the fabric of the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you're there all the time, after a while, people think you belong there. And, and that's what happened with me. And so I'm standing in the corner. And if you've ever been in a Division I college football locker room before a practice, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, these guys are big. There's a lot of testosterone flying around. Even back then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everybody's working really hard to get the team out on the field. Because you're trying to get 100 guys out there, okay? Mm. You know, to get everybody out there, uh, you know, prepped and ready to practice at the same time. It's like cooking a 10-course meal, you know? And so at one point, you know, because I've been around, this guy saw me all the time. He finally, a football player asked me to do something. And, and, you know, I knew what it was because I had been watching, but I wasn't supposed to do anything. So I went over to, to Bill Bean and I said, that big guy over there asked me to do something because I know what to do. Should I do it? He said, yeah, go ahead and do it. And so with that single moment, I kind of transitioned from 
you know, not just wanting to be in the profession, but actually, I actually did something in, in the training. Yeah. And then soon after that, as God would have it, we, we had a big snowfall up in the mountains. You know, this is, you know, Snowbird, Alta, Park City, some of the great skiing in the world. And a couple of the student athletic trainers didn't show up for their shift. They called in sick because they went wow. and, you know, ski fresh powder. Mm-hmm. And Bill knew what they did. He wasn't dumb. And because they lied to him, because that, that puts a big load on everybody else if you don't show up for your shift, right? Yeah. He kicked them out of the program, wow. which made room for me. Yeah. So I matriculated from meteorology into sports medicine. I worked the rest of that year. I'm sorry? It was the perfect storm, literally. Yeah, Yeah, literally. (laughs) And I worked the rest of the year for for that opportunity. And, you know, stars really started to line up. For me, and and so Gary Vitti shows up at the University of Utah in 1979 in Salt Lake City. Well, the Utah Jazz, the New Orleans Jazz, moved to Utah in 1979, mm-hmm. and so now there's a professional basketball team. So a year later, they're looking for a young student athletic trainer that wants to have some experience in the NBA yep. as an wow. assistant athletic trainer. They call the university and Bean sends me. Could have sent anybody, but he sent me. So to some extent, I earned it, but I happened to be in the right place at the right time, yeah. too. And so I end up, I end up going to work for the Utah Jazz yeah. part time. Well, one of the guys on that staff was Bill Burka. Okay, Bill Burka. Bill Burka, you know, who worked for the Lakers and then became the first general manager of the New Orleans Jazz. He's the one that that uh, made the deal to get Pistol Pete Maravich there. And yeah. and so now he's working for the Jazz and I'm working for the Jazz. And so Bill and I become friends. Uh, the Lakers fire Paul Westhead. They hire Pat Riley. The first call Pat Riley makes for his first assistant is Bill Burka. So Burka goes back and work, goes to work for the Lakers. I'm still in Utah at this point. I eventually finish my master's degree, start my PhD. I take a job at the University of Portland as the head guy up there. Two years later, the Lakers, job, the, the Lakers head athletic trainer's job opens up, and Burka tells Pat Riley, well, the guy you, you should talk to is this guy that I knew when he was at the University of Utah and working for the Jazz. His name wow. is Gary V. So the Lakers call me. Mm-hmm. I interview. Jerry West picks me up at the airport, okay, in a navy blue Mercedes with tan interior, drives mm-hmm. me to the to the fabulous forum, and it just so happened that the U- USA basketball was playing Spain for the gold medal in the 1984 Olympics on the day that I interviewed for at the, the Lakers at the forum. At the forum. Wow. And so here I am with Jerry West and Pat Riley interviewing for the head job in the building where the Olympics are going on and the U.S. is going to play Spain that night. I mean, it was like a magic carpet ride, yeah. you know? And, and uh, to make a long story short, I, I leave the building. I fly back to Portland. A couple days later, Jerry West calls me and offers me the job. 
And um, I spent the next 32 years, actually 34 years, 32 years as the head athletic trainer and two yeah. years as a special consultant to the team. And the rest was history at that the point. The rest was history. Yeah. I yeah. just want to say something about that whole journey, which is yeah. awesome. Yeah. So it's so cool to hear these, these stories of like just luck and purpose and all this stuff. But you said one thing, which was like, you're, you're trying to find a purpose. You're like, what am I supposed to do when you, and then you read this sports medicine book and you're like, that's what I'm supposed to do. And it's crazy. Right. I'm a soccer player. I'm trying to play professionally. And it's crazy how, when you, I've noticed this a little bit in my life, but I'm still very young. So things haven't quite fallen together, but, and the same with Stefano, when you have a purpose and you say, I want to do this and I want to speak this into reality, it slowly comes together as long as you do the right things. And your story is a testament to that. Your story is a testament to following your heart and listening, um, listening to the universe and just doing the right things. And, and things slowly just really begin to pile up, you know, opportunities, people know about you. And um, I thought that was such a cool little bit that you shared with the uh, wrapping the tape. That was your first, you know, click into it. So, so here's, here's something, listening to what you said about having purpose and, and finding what you want to do. So as I told you, I didn't have a purpose and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. What I did know is that I knew what I didn't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so that was a start anyway, because many people, um, they know that's not what they want to do but they don't have the courage okay, or the work ethic to yes. change their life because yes. it's not easy. I had to walk away from a job, a very clean job. My father worked in a factory all of his life. Okay? I was walking around in a three-piece suit. Mm -hmm. I was probably making more money than my dad when I was 22 years old than when he was. And, his biggest earning year of his life. Yeah. I, I had to walk away from that. That yeah. was a hard thing to do. Very hard, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're you know, three years out of college, you're earning money. Basically, what you're saying is, is I'm, I'm not going to work anymore. I'm going to go to school. I mean, I'm going to work. I, I did other, you know, jobs to help support myself to pay the rent. But I, I actually quit my, my well-paying three-piece suit job to go back to school you know now mm -hmm. the first step was I, w I stepped into the wrong program but eventually I, I I found it so you have to have the courage and the work ethic to follow your dreams and and you know that's that's one of the things about Shaq and I talk about this in in the book is that as angry as I used to get um, at him because of what I felt was his lack of work ethic. Yeah. I found out later um, he had a great work ethic that was beyond the basketball court. You know, what, what Shaq wanted to be was an inspiration to young people to follow their dreams. And if you actually look at his career, as much as I thought he underachieved, um, the basketball court, he has overachieved in life. Yeah, Shaq's working all the time. 
Yeah. You see him all the time. I mean, he's, you know, he's either doing broadcast or, you know, he's doing commercials or he's visiting people. He's doing inspirational yeah. things. Yeah. Um, I was with him when he got a humanitarian award that, wow. and he's, Shaq has got a great work ethic. Yeah. It just didn't show up on the basketball court because that yeah. part of his life led to what was really important to him. And then once he found what was important to him, that's where he put his, his time and effort. And so, you know, I guess the message is, is if you don't know what you, you want to do, that's okay. Okay. Um, as long as, as you, you search for it, yeah. don't get stuck. Okay. If you get stuck in a rut, it's a long life. You know, they, pay, they say life is short. Life isn't short. Life is long, okay, if you're not happy. Yes. You know? And, and part of finding your happiness, part of it, right? I mean, I, you know, now that we touched on happiness, I believe that happiness is not achieving what you're chasing. And that's what we're talking about right now. We're talking yeah. about chasing things. Yeah. So I, I think it's important to chase things. It's, it's important to want more. I, I think that's important. But yeah. your happiness shouldn't rely on it. Your true happiness should rely on being grateful for the things that you already have. And that begins with your health and that of your loved ones. If you have that, then you have everything. Yeah. And then if you realize that and you have that inner sense of, of happiness, now you can use your time and your energy and your work ethic to really follow your dream and use that, that inner happiness to, 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 to project on to what it is that you, you want to do with, you, with the rest yeah. of your life, whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it could be making toothpicks, okay? <laughs> you know, but if you choose to make toothpicks, be the best toothpick maker in the world, or let me rephrase that, try to be the best to yeah. make in, yeah. in the world. I think that's the most you can do in those kind of situations because at the end of the day, you're trying to find, it's like what you said, it's that search for what you want to do in life and not just getting stuck in a ruck, like you said. And you brought up, you brought up uh, Shaq and his kind of work ethic and his personality. I do want to ask, how is it, how was it for you kind of dealing with bigger personalities? So you as a man and also you as a head athletics trainer, how do you deal with people in your life who may have big egos, Lots big of personalities, money, the best of what they do? And how can you try to get them to kind of follow the path of a team or a journey that a team is trying to go on? Yeah, um, it's, it's a simple question with a complex answer. And the reason why it's a complex answer is because people are different, mm -hmm. right? So you, as an athletic trainer, um, you know, you have, you know, your superstars, and then you have the last guy on the roster that's just scratching to stay in the league, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a pecking order. But as the head athletic trainer, you have to treat everyone equally, but not the same. And, and so that's kind of wordy. And what that means is, is, you know, in answering your question, you have to find out what makes a guy tick. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's how you get him to do what he needs to do, what you want him to do, what the coach wants him to do. 
And, you know, some people need a pat on the back and an arm around them, and some people need a, a kick in the butt. And so you figure out, you know, who needs what, and then you, you try to be that for that person. And sort of the key is, is, is you develop a trust. And, and so um, I talk about, you know, think of a, a window mm-hmm. with four panes in the window. Yeah. And in one pane, I want you to put how you see yourself. In another pane, I want you to put how other people see you. In another pane, I want you to put how, other, how you think other people see you. Yeah. And in the fourth pane, I want you to put how you really are. Now, if those, those, it's a possibility that all four of those pains can be the same. There's a possibility they could all be different or the permutations of, of all four of those things. Yeah. If they're all the same, then you are very true to yourself. Yeah. And then if you want people to follow you, then they have to feel like they know you. And for them to know the true you, you have to know your true self. And if you can project that, then you can develop a trust. Yeah. And once you have the trust, then people will follow you and you can get them to do what it is that you want them to do. Wow, and that man. may be different for, for different people. But it all starts with your inner self. Yeah. Okay? Finding out what makes them tick. Okay? And then you going back to your, to your values and have them understand what kind of individual you are. If you are honest, if you are kind, if you are loyal, then they will trust you. And if you tell them we need to do it this way, even if it's not the way they want to do it, then hopefully they will follow you. Yeah. That's great. That's very well put. Yeah. I think something that I wanted to touch on is, um, a little more from an athletic perspective, as long as you're here, which is, but it's also mental is, is, uh, and a theme for all athletes and all successful business people, which is longevity and, um, cultivating that longevity mentally and physically and how are you are able to, you know, I, I'm, I know that the trust goes into that and just believing and, and going back to the plan. Um, but, how can you as a trainer in a professional organization cultivate longevity and uh, from a physical standpoint and from a mental standpoint? Yeah. So um, it's a, it's a great question, you know, from, from an athletic training standpoint uh, so much has changed in terms of the technology from 1979 when I read, you know, Stan Merkin's book, to um i'm sorry gabe merkin's book to to today and so one of the things one of the things obviously is is to be current okay and so when you look at at technology you always look at two things validity and reliability so if i bring you something um let's say it's an invention Mm -hmm. okay and you tell me that it does X. Yeah. Well, just because you say it does X, it doesn't mean that it actually does X. And so you have to prove to me that, that your invention actually does what you say it does. Yeah. And, and that's what we call validity. 
The second thing would be reliability. Yeah. Does it, it may do what you say it does, but does it do it all the time or does it only do it one out of 10 times? If it yeah, does it one out of 10 times, well, yeah, it did what you said it did, but it wasn't a very reliable thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then third, you know, there's a, a, a practical aspect of this. Yeah, it does what you say it does. It does it all the time, but your invention is the size of my house. Yeah. You know, you know, I can't take it with me to work. I can't take it on the road with me. Yeah. It's impractical. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, let's go back to the first two things. You know, so we're talking about technology. Well, it's the same thing with individuals. You as a person, okay? You go to the interview. I can do this. I can do that. I can. Well, can you really do it or is it just you saying you can do it? Mm-hmm. So you have to be valid in what you claim you can do, okay? And you have to be reliable. You have to be doing it all the time, every time. You, have, you don't have to be the best, but you have to be the best that you can be. You have to try to be the best every day of, of your life. There's a quote from John Wooden, and he says, you know, you can't be 100% all the time. On those days, concentrate on what you can do, not what you can't do. And so if you, you follow these sorts of philosophies, then, then the people around you will recognize that and want to keep you around because not everybody has those characteristics uh, about yeah. So that's your responsibility of being valid and reliable in what you do. Now you have an employer, okay? You could be valid and reliable, but let's say you got a new owner and you got a new general manager and his nephew says he's an athletic trainer and he wants to give the job to that person. Well, there's nothing you can really do about that, can you? You did your job, but so now, you know, looking at my career, how fortunate was I to have Dr. Buss as an owner, Jerry West as a general manager, and later Mitch Kupchak as general manager, okay? So I was really surrounded by people, once again, with similar values as me, they were honest, they were kind, and in this particular case, they were loyal. Yes. Okay? And, and so, you know, I'll take credit for, for part of my longevity in the sense that I tried to be the best I could uh, every day. I, maybe I wasn't the best. Some people say I was the best. I never said that. Mm-hmm. I never said that about myself. You know, if I had to, if you, if you put a gun to my head, and said, describe yourself, I would say, yeah, I was better than most, not as good as some. I mean, there's some really great athletic trainers out there that, you know, so I don't claim to be the best, but I don't think anybody worked harder than than me at trying to be the best, I don't think, you know. Um, So I did my part, but I was also very, very fortunate in my career that I was employed um, by really wonderful people that yeah. were above me. And, and I say that because I saw other really great athletic trainers, not just in basketball, but in other sports, lose their job. You know, there was a regime change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they decided to want to bring their own people in. Yeah. And, and a lot of good people lost, lost their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because of lack of loyalty, or yeah. you know, those people had loyalties to other people. Um, I'll head on to another question, which also is tethered to longevity, which is this is now kind of more strictly a physical one, which is 
I, so I tore my ACL last year. Um, and that was a big shock to my system, but, but it woke me up a little bit more about who I want to be, what I want to do, why I want to do it. And, um, I think a lot of athletes struggle and I'm sure you've had, you know, especially with Kobe and the Achilles and a lot of other athletes going through big injuries. What is like some pieces of advice that you would give to a young athlete? I don't know, anywhere from 17 to 25 who are just really starting to hit their stride and getting, you know, cut down by an injury. What kind of stuff would you say to them to have confidence and like keep, keep moving forward? Yeah. Um, if you go to VD Report, I, I wrote a blog about what Kobe taught me. Yeah. About this and, and specifically when he, he ruptured his Achilles tendon. Yeah. And so, you know, very often uh, athletes, when they sustain a devastating injury, it's, it's, they go through the grieving process the same way as if you lost a loved one. So there's, there's the five stages of that. You know, the first one's denial, and then it ends up with the acceptance, okay? Um, and you can, you can read the, the blog so we don't waste a lot of time going mm-hmm. through that. But let me say this. The true test of one's character is when things are going badly. Yes. Not when everything is going your way. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you sustain... Uh, a career-threatening injury, that's when things are going bad. And that's when yeah. the true you is really going, going to come out. Now, let's take Kobe for, for instance. So we're going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about Kobe Bryant because that's a different person. Yeah. We're going to talk about the Black Mamba. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's the same body. Okay? It's the same human being. But it's two different, completely different people. Okay? Cool. So Kobe Bryant is this really, really beautiful individual with a heart of gold that loves children. Like if you saw him with his children or my children or my goddaughter or Make-A-Wish kids, it's, it's hard to understand. If you ever saw the Black Mamba, it's hard to understand that this is the same person. Wow. Okay? Because he was really, really a sweetheart. But then there's this other, other guy that's the Black Mamba. And the Black Mamba is this ruthless competitor. And one of the things about the Black Mamba is he took the words can't and won't out of his lexicon yeah. and replaced those words with can and will. Yeah. And so when you get yourself into the situation that you're talking about, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and then you have to say to yourself, I need to be the best version I can be of myself because now the worst is supposed to bring the best out in me. And, and in order for that to happen, you have to refuse, you have to refuse to, lose yeah you cannot accept defeat at at this point yeah you must win okay and what that means is is you must be the best version you can be of yourself and that's either going to be good enough or not good enough to continue to compete yeah 
So, so the goal is to be the best you can be. Yeah. Okay? Then we'll find out later if that's good enough. Yeah. Okay? yeah. To compete because maybe if you ne were never injured, you you might have been on on a roll there where you were competitive. Yeah. But it's always sort of a continuum, right? You know, you, you can have people that have a great year, um, and then you never hear from them a, a, again. Yeah. So the you know the question is is are you good enough? Uh, to compete over the long term, yeah, um, you know, and with all the ups and downs that that go with competition, yeah, you know, you will always learn more from your failures than you will from your successes in life. So true, exactly. it's so true. We were listening to another podcast. We we both love Joe Rogan. I don't know if you've listened to Joe, but we're big fans. Yeah. <laughs> and he had Laird Hamilton on, the famous big wave surfer. And Laird said, you know, you never learn anything when you, you really don't get injured. I mean, he's broken every bone in his body. Mm -hmm. And it's like you get more familiar with who you are and your body and like what you need to do to get your body to tick, to get your mind to tick. And like, yeah, you don't learn anything from winning, you know? Great. It was a win. Okay, cool. Let's move forward. Yeah, I think you can learn, but you, you don't. It, yeah. It's really easy to gloss over a win, yeah. you know, especially – in basketball, you can win on a lucky last second shot, and then you you know, and then you win. You go to the locker room. If you lost, if you missed the shot, then all of a sudden, how do we lose? You know, and you start going through the whole you know yeah. play by play by play by play. You know, how do we lose the game? Whereas if you win, you know, you end up going in the locker room. Hey, we won the game. Now you don't really look at well, how do we get in the position that we could have lost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that's that's really, you know, unfortunately, um, the way sports is sports. People freak out when I say this. Um, sports is set up for failure. Yeah. Okay? We don't look at it that way. Yeah. Okay. We look at it as it's set up to win. It's set up for success. No, it's set up for failure. Yeah. Only yeah. one team can win yeah. the last game. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else goes home a loser. Yeah. Even if you're in second place, you're the first loser. I mean, you, you know, you, you're, yeah. so that's the way it's, it's set up. And, 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 and that's why winning a championship is so euphoric. Okay. Because it's so hard to do. Yeah. And once you've tasted it, it's like a drug, you know, I, I've always said the other. You hear players towards the end of their career. I just want to win it one time, and then I'll and then I'll retire. I'll walk away. No, it doesn't work that way. Losing makes you want to retire. Yeah. Makes you want to quit. Okay? Yeah. Winning is what keeps you in. You want it, You want that high, that euphoric yeah. high that you get from a championship. You want yeah. to feel that over and over. Yeah. And you, when you mentioned Kobe too, I think that was a really good point that you brought up that. It's a consistent uh, like renewal and searching of your best self and finding out what your best self is. And you, like you said, you should look for that. And then after the fact, you can say, is that the best you can be? And you can keep moving forward. But I think that was perfect for describing Kobe because I feel like a lot of athletes should have that kind of mentality. I think yeah. it's really hard to have Kobe's mentality. It might never be matched again, but 
having that mindset of looking for your best self continually, not just one time, but continually throughout your career. I think that's very important. It's a lot of pressure though, you know, to hold yourself to those standards. I've struggled with that. I'm sure you struggle with that getting yeah. into USC, yeah. you know, how, how, how can individuals as, as a book that I read and I gave to Stefan on his first birthday, um, um, which was, what was the book that I gave you again? What was it called? Oh my God. It's about the all blacks, um, from New Zealand legacy, my bad legacy. And, um, they say at a point in the book, meet pressure with pressure. People always say, you know, pressure does this pressure, you know, pressure busts a pipe too. pressure does a lot of things, but it can also from this, you know, video that we like pressure also creates diamonds in the rough, you know, creates these awesome moments. So how, in observing, you know, kind of taking that like step back, like you were when you're in the training room, how did you observe that a lot of those pro athletes met pressure with pressure? Well, <clears throat> there's a reason why, there's a reason why you want the ball in the hands of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, when the game is on the line. Yeah. Okay? Everybody wants to win. Yeah. Everybody wants to win. Nobody's going to tell you I want to lose. Everybody wants to win. But not everybody knows how to win. And, and so these are the people that are, are willing to meet the pressure and, and meet it head on and take their best shot at winning and live with, live with making the shot are not making yeah. the shot. You know, Jerry West, Mr. Clutch. Okay. So Jerry West is the logo. Yeah. Jerry West went to the finals, I think, eight times. Yep. He only won one championship. Think about that. Yeah. And when you think about the Mount Rushmore okay, yeah. of basketball, Many people believe that Jerry West should be on there. I, I believe that. Now you got guys that have won five or six championships. Okay? Yeah. You know, Jerry's only won one. But also, Jerry West is the only player ever to be the MVP of a finals on a losing team. The only one. The MVP is always on the winning team. Yeah. Jerry yeah. West is the only guy ever to be MVP on a on a yeah. losing team. And yeah. so these, these are the people that love competition. Mm-hmm. They want to compete. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And as much as they want to win, they're afraid they're, they have a fear of losing. Yeah. And that's how many people meet the pressure. Okay? They, they don't want to lose. And so it pushes them into a zone that you normally wouldn't go to. Yeah. You know, people ask me all the time about our physiological limits. You know, it used to be the four-minute mile, right? You know, and then Bob Beeman with the long jump blew that away one day, and then Carl Lewis beat that. So these, these sort of physiological records, okay, that seem they're never going to be broken. Right. And then somebody not only breaks them, they shatter 
they shattered the record, you know. Um, 62 home runs by, by Roger Maris, right? Mm-hmm. You know, beating Babe Ruth. And then you got, you know, Mark McGuire, McGuire and Sammy Sosa, yeah. you know. And then later, uh, Bobby Bonds blows that record up, okay? Yeah. Now they're in the 70s, right? Yeah. So, you know, what is, what is there? Well, one of the things that I described is, you know, the stories about the, the guy that comes along and, you know, there's a kid pinned under the car and the guy picks up the car to save yeah. the kid? Yeah. Okay. Well, there's no kid picked on, pinned under the car. The guy can't do it, right? So wow, what, is, what was there about that? He physically did it. Yeah. So we know that the human body can do it. Yeah. So why can you not do it unless it's under extraordinary circumstances? Right. Well, yeah. the answer to that is the psychological limits that you put upon yourself. And so to answer your question, all of us, everyone in the world, Everyone is capable of extraordinary things. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We all are. Yeah. Why are some people more extraordinary than others? It's in it's in here. Yeah. It's in your mind. You know, are you willing to do what it takes to win? Yeah. When I when I mean by win is to be successful, come back from surgery or whatever are you willing to do that are you willing to break through the barriers are you willing to go to a place that's uncomfortable for you okay? but that's what you need to do yeah. to get to where you you want to be most yep. people don't have that makeup no not no. a lot not a lot no right and and that's why the reputations of the Jerry West and the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's and Michael Jordan's and the Magic Johnson's and the Kobe Bryant's and the Larry Bird's, they just don't make reputations. But these are reputations that, that stand the test of time. Yeah. yeah. They go on from generation to generation to generation. Yeah, I never saw the guy play, but I've heard of him. I knew what he did. Yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. So I I hope that answers your question. And that's all the time we had today. We wanted to thank Gary very much for being on the podcast with us. We had some really great discussions about his past with the Lakers, his past experiences with different players, coaches, and just overall his observations he's had in life and in sports for the past thirty-two years. So we want to thank everyone for listening, and we hope you join us on the next episode of Make the Jump. Mm-hmm.